Welcome to Chosen by Committee, the podcast where myself, Christopher Munden, and John Rosenberg read every Pulitzer Prize winning play since 1918, so you don't have to, or maybe so you'll join us at home. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to take a second to talk a little bit about the city that we all live in. Uh, For the last week, Philadelphia has been righteously uprising against the police to honor the memory of George Floyd and to make sure these types of atrocities don't happen again. Um, As you're probably (laughs) well aware, John, Chris, and I are well-intentioned white dudes, but not people whose voices need to be added to the conversation about this right now, except to amplify the uh, voices of those that are doing direct work in the street. Um, Before we get started, we did want to affirm that Black Lives Matter, that George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade's murders were terrible atrocities that happened at the hands of white silence and white indifference. And I am hopeful that the rage in the streets brings about deep social change. All right, let's talk about a play. My name is Josh Heron. I am a third grade teacher um, and- Third grade uh, theater director. Third grade theater director. Um, Today, uh, my class premiered its um, original play, The Teacher Strike, Story of uh, Fairness and Freedom, um, which was a really soothing bomb um, in uh, during this week. Um, And Chris got to show up and watch it. That was really fun. Um, Christopher Munden is, um, beside his uh, swarthy British accent, is a um, writer, soccer coach to the stars, um, man about town. And uh, John Rosenberg is uh, a man with with a love for humanity. (laughs) Hell yeah, man. Um, I am so, um, to counterback, counterbalance the sort of somber message, um, that we began this with, and maybe it's like tone deaf, I don't know, but I am, um, really excited to talk about this play. Um, it's something that I think is going to put my mind at some ease right now. Um, I think it is, um, it is super rich. Would anyone want to give a quick summary? I'm, I can sort of do it. I actually don't think it's super hard to summarize. No, it's not. It's not that hard to summarize the plot, probably, and the plot isn't what makes it so interesting. I mean, we could just say that it's it's about this lady, Nina, who uh, we find three different men in love with her, right? Yep. Um, at the beginning of the play, her um, first love, Gordon, is killed in World War I um, before she's able to um, consummate their relationship. Uh, <laughs> she spends the sort of the rest of her life, or at least the beginning part of the play, feeling super guilty and trying to figure out how to, to... Well, actually, she doesn't try to figure out how to, like, fix it. She has a way to fix it, but all of the men in her life, her father... Um, Charlie, who's sort of this like patriarchal friend, older brother figure, 
later becomes sort of a father figure to her, um, uh, helps her out and encourages her to marry this guy, Sam Evans, who she doesn't um, particularly like very much, but thinks is nice enough. And he is aided by a doctor. Um, and at various points, all three of them are vying for her love. Um, it turns out that Sam, who she does marry, has a, a vague form of insanity, um, runs through the blood of his family. So she has to terminate her pregnancy um, and decides uh, to trick him by sleeping with the doctor um, and raising that child as her and Sam's kid. Um, uh, shockingly, none of that really comes to a head. Um, and it sort of, and that is, like, like Christopher said, that is not the most interesting part of the play. Um, John, do you want to talk about what, at least in my mind, I wonder if you agree, that what you think is the most interesting part of the play or what maybe me and John have been alluding to? I mean, I assume you gentlemen are like referring to, uh, I don't think I've ever, I've, I don't think I've ever read this in a play where um, you're, you're able to hear the thoughts of each character and the, uh, a lot of times the contradictory nature and like what they think and it's spoken out loud. Uh, so it, it must be interesting like the theatrically how it's done and like the, the difference between what people think and what they say and their actions, which, uh, yeah, um, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I think um, to do a little bit of dramaturgical contextualization, um, it seems that Eugene O'Neill um, is sort of trying to put to the stage sort of the modernist experimentation of authors like James Joyce and Virginia Woolf, who had spent you know the early part of the 20th century uh, really mastering this sort of stream of consciousness um, writing technique. Um, yeah, I, was, I saw a lot of like Mrs. Dalloway in this, at least at first. It felt like a, a modernist work. You're getting like not just the conversation, but but what are these people thinking? And like a a different way of trying to bring out the character. Um, and I think it's, it's also, yeah. It's self-consciously it's self-consciously theater, right? Like there's no, you don't, you don't necessarily lose yourself. This is reality. Um, I mean, I guess in a good production, you would in a different way, but it's, it's acknowledging this is theater. Like, uh, um, so I think it, it's, to me, it's like the, you know, I think about all of the, the great literature of the early 20th century that like now, like the great, the modernist movement in poetry and in literature, in plays when you consider like Borker and Brecht, um, uh, but uh, Josh mentioned some literature and poetry. We have, you know, T.S. Eliot, Pound. This is the first play I've read where like, this is this belongs in in that conversation too, and I think it's fair to say that the play is um, uh, a cool nine acts, um, and yeah, it's long. that sort of nine act 
melodrama wouldn't um, sustain itself for a good, you know, probably three hour play. I think um, as originally performed, it was five and a half hours. Um, it's a beast. It was, it was tough to read at points. Um, I think that's sort of what I found surprising. My, like, my surprises for it were, I mean, I guess it shouldn't be surprising that a nine act play is tough to read. Um, but also sort of that the like central plot is like pretty melodramatic. It's like, it's, I, I would say that the plot is sort of, um, I don't know, it, it, it's not the selling point, but the, the way not. that he goes about sort of structuring the internal monologues, I think is just so fascinating. Um, In another way, the, the, the work I thought of was a more recent one. Um, what's it called? Boyhood, the Richard Linklater film, where he films it over like 15 years or 10 years, like filming every year with the kids growing up. And it's a really like interesting idea. You see over the course of the movie, people age. But then when it came down to it, like, I don't know how great a movie was it. I think like that movie Moonlight was the same year, which had like the character aging traditional way, like using different actors and stuff. And that was like a much better movie. So like this was formally really impressive, really interesting, but then the plot, the, the drama of it, um, I wasn't sure how, how great it was in that way. What did you think about it, uh, John? Well, I mean, I think it is interesting that, like, I think this is one of the first plays I've read where I would be really interested to see what actors could do with it. Like, mm -hmm. I think, like, a lot of times, I'd be like, oh, it'd be interesting, or I would love to see what they would do in that scene or, like, to portray something. But this thing, like, there's no... I'm very interested with, like, with actors having nowhere to hide on stage. And I've, I've never seen anything like this, where, like, this is what they think, this is what they say. Like, there's no room for subtext, there's no room for, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, there's zero room for it. And, like, it's, it's brutal in a way that, like, there's nothing that's left to the imagination, really. And like, um, but but I, th I feel like the other interesting thing though is like, it is like an interesting departure for me, like, um, but it's funny because I, I remember when I read To the Lighthouse when I was young, mm -hmm. yeah, and I read that once and I never need to read it again because it was like one of the most incredible yeah. things I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And like, I felt like the interesting thing about like, the it was very this is like the internal monologue was just it was so expositional and like mm -hmm. the characters never talked or thought of anything outside of like which is really Plot. cool right. right like it was it was beautiful how i will say this is like the most petty play i've ever read which i love i love the pettiness what do you mean by that all the characters, what consumes them are such small things, or not small things, but like what's right in front of them, you know, winning this person's love, making certain this person doesn't threaten what they need. There's no large ideas at stake here. 
Um, so I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But like at the same time, I would I couldn't imagine what Virginia Woolf could do with this. Like, what would her stream of consciousness for these characters be? Where, um, but again, like, yeah, I I can't imagine what this shit's like on stage. Like, it's yeah. no it's no Mrs. Dalloway, right? It's. I mean, and I I do think that it's fair to say that that I think. Uh, the play could probably benefit from a playwright who like appreciates women <laughs> or values women um, in a in a way probably a little bit in a little bit more of a nuance. I mean, I think he didn't to an extent. He didn't understand. It was there was a shallow understanding of human nature. I saw like. I actually, I, I, mean, I, I disagree. I feel like I feel like he had a good understanding of human nature. I think he takes a very, I think he had a very skeptical view of like of women uh, and like the difference in human nature of women as opposed to men, or like what time and desire does to women versus men. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you, gonna... you find the men sympathetic? No, I feel like everyone was petty, but like hers was a special. He, yeah. I, mean, I, think cool. I could say that I think it sort of reminded me of Mrs. Craig, right? In that, um, yeah. Or Craig, sorry, I keep calling Mrs. Craig. Um, in that, like, all of these people, like, it's it's sort of fucked up. In that, like she really has very little control over her life, right? Like she is sort of like bounced around between these men and like does like, does sort of some small stuff to gain control or to try to like balance it out. And yet is also simultaneously portrayed as this sort of like manipulative, like vindictive, um, I don't know, like, well, I mean, her whole life is men. You know what I mean? She yeah. goes from like yeah. Gordon to this like, does like not a father. Test. But <laughs> the men's whole life is women. I don't know. I found her interesting and sympathetic. But no, no, don't get me wrong. I, I, I. At some point, I wasn't like this is. I'm not interested. I was. I was very interested. But like, um, yeah, like. I like that you brought up the um, the idea, what he does a lot in the in the text of the hypocrisy of of us thinking one thing and saying another. Oh, absolutely! And of us yeah. Hiding our motivation and having a motivation and and um, trying to realize that motivation in a way that would seem to contradict the motivation. I, I like that. And she does it, and all of the men do it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I feel like the one, the, the, and I guess this is what happens with things that are good, is you, it captures your imagination and you want more out of it. But like, I feel like everyone always knew why they thought what they did. 
or like even if even if they change their mind 25 fucking times like i know a lot of times when i think something i don't know why i do and they I show a lot that. of doubt too right maybe doubt about their own motivation and, and others sure i guess i just uh there, there was just no room for interpretation in this play um which is interesting but I guess when I think of like the inner life, the whole point is that it's, it could be 25 different things, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, right. Uh, Virginia Woolf does that stream of consciousness. Yeah, to the lighthouse, I, that just- To the lighthouse. To the lighthouse, Jesus fucking Christ, you know? I mean, I I would, yeah, I would say like, I'm so impressed by her. I similarly like when I think of my favorite plays from uh, my favorite books from that um, time period. I don't necessarily think of her, but like in form and in realization. Just because to me, she's so beyond like stuff. Right. Yeah. She's she's beyond. What What did you think, Josh? Um. I. So I'm actually really taken by the idea of like that this makes an actor's job sort of more challenging in that like it limit it's like a it's a big constraint in terms of choices, right? Like your internal choices for your character are dictated for you. Um Oh, I think it makes it so easy for them. <laughs> I don't know though. I I mean I think if you're a lazy actor, but I I don't know. The actors I know aren't lazy. Like, I think that like, you're going to find places to do work on it. Like, I think it like pulls, if you're like, to make this interesting, you're going to have to like, find other ways to individualize a character. Um, well, to me, I think where that happens is the brutality of time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, where brilliant. like, yeah. the, the, the patterns of behavior, the patterns of who they are, that to me is when an actor is really able to like bring their own thing to it, you know, like, cause I feel like it would be harder if it was just like a way shorter play. But I guess part of the genius is because it's so long, man, I just don't know how any actor could fucking do this. Like, right, it takes place over like 20, 30 years, right? 25 yeah. years probably. Okay. Sorry, I, there's like a very interesting production history that I'll talk about in a little bit. The other thing I, that I to talk about what the actors can do. Um, one of the other things I was really struck by, and this has been a thing I've been keeping track since our first episode, John, is the, um, I, I wish we had- Stage uh, directions? No, oh, that's too true. Uh, God, mm. his stage directions are incredible. I mean, like impossible. Like, um, so like act three, she's stouter than before. Oh, yeah, as an yeah. air of yeah. like trauma but in a spunky way it's like right someone's more tanned than less tanned the hair is thinning now like, like they've aged they're showing she has their an age unspeakable power that <laughs> graces her when she touches her teacup and it's just like what like okay uh <laughs> yeah how um, does that take place on stage. But no, my, my watch alert is World War One watch. Um, mm. um, and I do feel like this is the best, this is the, this is like the, the, in dealing with the aftermath and the trauma of World War One, right? Like Nina's like 
sort of whole thing is it like comes in mean that yeah but yeah. even all the other ones right like uh like in the beginning there like fight. there's like some stuff around like i couldn't go to the war and i wasn't a real man like there's like a lot of like the in the early part of the play there's a lot of um like focus on on masculinity and fighting and virility and just the fact that the effect that his death has on uh, my uh, my great grandmother, her fiance died in in World War One. She never. No, it wasn't my great grandmother. It was her, my great grandmother's sister, and she never married. Yeah. What side did he fight on? He fought on the side of all that's good and right, the British okay. Army. John. Okay, I'm just checking. <laughs> It'd be also really cool if your other. We had another aunt who was Rose on the Titanic. <laughs> um, but I, I think you know when I when I think of like we're rounding out there was 1928. This is the third and last Pulitzer for Eugene O'Neill for a very long time. Not his last. Best plays don't get it. I mean, I love Long Day's Journey tonight, but. Well, that gets it, but Moon for the Misbegotten and um, The Iceman Cometh. I mean, I think, weird, I think of like One Day's Journey, Moon for the Misbegotten, Iceman Cometh, those are his three plays to me. And and we just read three plays that won Pulitzer, and I know of a couple others of his plays from this time period. And I was looking up, because I was interested in like what literature was coming out at this time, Mm-hmm. I looked up like Nobel Prizes for Literature and saw he won in like 1936 before any of those three plays were published. So he won like on the back of these plays, of the plays we've read, basically. I mean, I think to think about it, like, like he is so ambitious. Like in terms of like what we've been reading, like, mm-hmm. like is this the best play I've ever read ever? No. Like, is it I'm like, sure I'd say it's the best play of the three we've read. But like, like if you think about <laughs> what the other people who are winning these awards are doing, like no one's coming close to him. Like in terms of like experimenting with the form, in terms of pushing like what can be done on stage, in terms of thinking, like he really thinks about time in a way that's like, really crazy, like, you know, this time thing had the same effect in Beyond the Horizon um, with setting and the sea and Anna Christie. Um, I don't know. Um, I've, met, <clears throat> I've mentioned his, I can't, excuse me. <clears throat> uh, I'm gonna have to go. We'll pause. Are you okay? What happened to him? How interesting it was. Okay. Well. I've talked about his other two plays from that period that I've seen. Harry Eight, which is like uh, expressionistic play, like everything is symbolic. And then Morning Becomes a Lecture, which is another long play lots of supernatural, lots and lots of suicide and 
and also really experimental. He was, I think, to an extent, trying out different forms in this period. He's obviously really influenced by what's going on in Europe, by what other playwrights, by what other writers, other, you know, by modernist art. Um, and it's interesting to me that he then, for his late plays, settles back into the realism that we saw in Beyond the Horizon. But I do think it's interesting for for every, everything we're saying about like him pushing like the form and all that stuff. All of his plays have the same, they're all very related. And like they all kind of, he seems to be interested in kind of the same idea or just like, they're very simple stories about what love. ideas do you see? Love. Well, I, I feel like all of them have to do with like love or like perception of love um, and control. Um, also, time, right? Like, I think of Anna Christie being really defined by the past of the characters' plays. Of the like, it's about the past of Anna Christie, right? Um, it's sort of like the the unspoken character and beyond the horizon is all about the like one decision that affects the future. And then this is sort of about the like, just, and, and this and beyond the horizon are about like just sort of the cruelty of time. Right. Well, um, I think it's, I was just thinking it's so fascinating that this whole play turns on like a very quick conversation that Nina has with Sam's mom. I mean, yes. Like, yeah. Like, hey, by the way, like the blood is bad, so you should abort your baby. Right. Like, and then at one point she's like, she was probably just upset about my happiness, and it's like, like you didn't. And then the doctor's like, no, no, I checked it out. It's like he wasn't. Yeah, that's a really like you've talked before, Josh, about uh, the treatment of mental illness in some of these plays. That's a really terrible treatment of mental illness, especially, I mean, I keep going back to like Mrs. Dalloway, but her treatment of PTSD is, mm -hmm. is so perceptive, Virginia Woolf's and, but, uh, and Shakespeare, but, of course. The, the one thing I do want to say is that like, this play is so overwrought with like, who loves who, but like a very, just shattering decision of aborting your baby mm -hmm. is just like happens so quick and like is not we don't watch like the, the thinking behind it it's just kind of like okay well that's and yeah i just think it's i have to do it or he'll yeah. be insane yeah and i just find it fascinating that like for whatever reason that wasn't something he was interested in. something so dramatic he wasn't interested in playing with at all but it was more also about like i think that's really interesting though too, right because the the like use of abortion as like a dramatic tragic thing is like in my mind super political and super like contextual to like i don't know the mid 20th century um, and I think right now you're getting like sort of other stories of like terminated pregnancy um, that are maybe, you know, 
like just more complicated than being simply these like tragic things. Um, and I think it's interesting, I mean, you know, I don't know how intentional this is or if it just sort of happened and he didn't want to like care to write about it. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, in the 1920s, pre, you know, pre-code in cinema, sort of during a really decadent time in America, that you could get away with writing a character having an abortion and it sort of just being a thing. It's like, it doesn't have to be the sort of moral panic that it becomes later in the 20th century. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, but to me, the fact that it occurs on stage within like, the mom brings it up and she's like, cool, you're right. Like it happens so quickly. And there's something about it that's just very, very strange to me. Well, he's not interested in thinking about what effect that has on Nina or her thoughts. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about like, that conversation was not long. Like <laughs> her being like, you know what, you're right. I should probably. It was not a long conversation. Because at the at start all. of the scene, she's so excited to be pregnant. She's so excited that the prospect <laughs> of being a mother. <laughs> and by yeah. the end of the scene, she's like, yes, I'll kill the baby. Or it could be insane. Is it that the baby could be insane? Or that the father, it would make the father insane? Which doesn't make sense because she then has a baby she pretends is his. I think the mom is like... And this, this baby is cursed. Have a baby with someone else and tell them that. But it doesn't make. But you're. Right. I was thinking this too as I was reading it. Is it's like so? Sam isn't crazy because he doesn't know who his dad was crazy, and he can't have a baby because the baby would be crazy and that he'll be crazy too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it's a, that's a tough, I mean, it also reminds, like, all, all I'm saying I, is, I'm this play, the, if this you, play is five and a half hours long, and yeah. that happens in, like, two minutes. <laughs> it's one of the acts. It's but one I, of the acts. Isn't he thinking about, like, Eugene O'Neill's conception of inner life is, like, like, these characters don't have, like, pleasant thoughts or, like, philosophical right. thoughts like these are no, not yeah. like these are beings that are just like pure like desire and yeah. like, deception and uh and repression of emotion too though yeah there's a fair amount of that especially charlie uh, um the old the paternal figure but also ned the like and nina too they talk a lot about um you know, what they want and what they can't have. And, and, you know, I appreciate it because I feel like all of us are like that in certain ways that like we mm -hmm. are like just driven by our needs and our desires. But like, I wonder why it was, it's like very bare bones yet it's so overly indulgent at the same time. Mm. Like it's just, reducing people to their wants and desires, period. Um, I don't know what he's saying by doing that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it probably, um, like, I think 
like the scope of what he's trying to do is so ambitious that like you can make yourself real crazy, right? Like trying to write a drama with everyone's actual inner monologue the entire time. I think that like that's sort of the the maybe the failure of the experiment is that it's like not totally possible. And so what you yeah, have, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's on purpose for some reason. That mm-hmm. like I mean, that's maybe a more interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I don't feel like he I don't feel like uh I don't feel like he sold it short. I feel like it was a very conscious decision on his part. Mm. Like because his his ability, you know, with his stage directions, with his like setting of scenes is so vivid and precise and like he breathes life into scenes before they start, you know? Um and his characters are able to say very, very profound uh, things about life. And I, yeah, to me, there's like, there's a reason why he did this. And I don't know what it is, but it's very interesting. Like this dude, he could have done whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> like, so to me, it's like, he went this far. He could have gone even further if he wanted to, but for some reason, I feel like it was a very, very specific choice to just like shrink everyone just to their desires and wants. Hmm. Did you think reading it, uh, what would this play be like without the inner monologue? Yeah, I, I thought about it at times. It'd be bit, it would be interesting. It'd be cool. You know what I mean? Would just it be like, cool? I think it would be a. Sub- I mean. Well, it'd be staged uh, it like uh, notes to the actor, right? This is what you're thinking right now. Yeah, I th- this is I'd, what you're saying. I would definitely want to watch that. You know what I mean? Oh, where the script is still intact, but we don't. Yeah, we you don't, don't have hear... the inner yeah. dialogue. I mean, so this is a great time to talk about. I think a little bit of performance history. Um, okay. So, I mean, and, and mostly just in my performance history. I mean, about a really cool production that happened in Brooklyn. Um, a couple of years ago where um, I believe his name is David Greenspan. He's like a pretty prominent New York, New York experimental actor did the entire thing by himself um, uncut. And it apparently was amazing. Um, mm. I have like, I just cannot imagine that. It'd be really interesting in any production like how an actor, how the actors managed to show when they were talking dialogue and when it was an aside. So I don't know how how you do that on stage and how one person does that on stage, even drawing lines between the different characters and then between when the character is saying something and when the character is thinking something. Yeah, I'm sure he created his own rules of naturalism that you caught on to after a while. Yeah, I guess so. Actors are smart, directors are smart. So I was thinking about a production where we have young Nina play the girlfriend of, um, in the- in Mariella. Yeah. yeah. And then have, mm. um, and have Sam's mom then turn into old Nina. Mm. I like that. That's cool. And then there's some interesting parallels there. And I'm not sure, maybe you have, the men all switch parts all the time. Yeah, because they're all 
they're interchangeable in a way. I mean, literally, Charlie becomes the dad. Yeah. In the the play, like, I, I also want to talk about this. The last, like, maybe five pages of the play go off the rails in a way that I loved. Like, in a, like, in like a, like, I don't know, like, um, Ionesco, almost, like, absurdist sort of thing that felt like I was very surprised by. You mean just in terms of her being, what? like, all married Charlie? But even the way they talk to each other, it just feels like, it, like she like disassociates from reality in a way that almost feels like a, maybe not UNESCO, but like Edward Albee or something very contemporary where it's like just much more detached and surreal than the preceding parts of the play. Yeah. It is a strange ending. Although I, it was, I was rooting for Charlie the whole play. <laughs> What's that? Because you are Charlie. Uh, I saw myself oh, in maybe oh. all four characters. Uh, oh, then, like, I could. I mean, you know, we've all we've all been there as like Sam Auden's like more loving one. Before, well, we've all been there. Maybe we haven't all been there as Ned uh, sleeping with our friend's wife. Um. Yeah, because fucking Chris is definitely Charlie um, wanting to be like weirdo father figure. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I was perfect casting. Talking? I was pitching, pitching in the beginning, pitching Nina as um, Olivia Hussey from Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, you know who I mean? Yeah. Yeah, man. Is that, she, was the, Wait, she, was the, Juliet, right? she was the nurse, right? <laughs> she was Juliet. She was Juliet, yeah. Uh, That's who I was picturing. Who would you be, John? I don't know, but I, I think what was interesting to me, just like with the, the idea of the production, I was wondering, one, I was wondering how they did it originally, like the differentiation of like, uh, inner monologue and then like what they say out loud mm -hmm. and I was just wondering how like modern productions would do it you know yeah I mean I was thinking about you could do voiceovers but that sounds so cheesy that'd be terrible yeah and then there apparently was a very experimental production in Chicago um, a few years ago that looks bonkers in the 80s it was like redone and cut pretty short and it was received mm -hmm. mostly as a comedy like a Noel Coward. I could almost see that. I mean, it is, at its worst, it's kind of like Noel Coward relationship stuff, the infidelity, the like, it has a lightheartedness in a way, has a humor, but that would be a terrible way of directing it. If I'm anyone, I think I want to be, <laughs> I want to be Sam's mom. <laughs> with my messed up views on mental health. Um, I mean, and then I, I mean, so to wrap up, I, I think for me, this is a, a play that it seems pretty clear why it won the Pulitzer. Because I think it was just doing something that was like, it was doing something really bold. Yeah. 
Yeah, although, I mean, I've looked at the Pulitzers for poetry and literature, and I guess Faulkner won, but generally the great play, uh, great books, and uh, like Sun Also Rises and, and Great Gatsby don't win. Like, the Langston Hughes doesn't win. The, the, the like, great works of literature, experimental works of literature from that time aren't the ones that are getting the Pulitzers. So it's nice that this did, perhaps. Um, I think this ranks up pretty high on my list. I mean, I would still maybe say, to me, the best three plays we've read were the Eugene O'Neill, and maybe I still like Beyond the Horizon. But I re- I mean, I, I, yeah, Anna Christie didn't do it for me, but this is up there. I think, yeah, I, I Beyond the Horizon was really, like, I really struck me. Maybe that was just because we were early on in the process. We were less world weary. Right. I mean, I wonder, yeah. Um, um, I'll miss him. We'll get him back. Um, and then in the 30s and the 40s, there are seven years where there are, uh, it's like there's Richard E. Sherman and Thornton Wilder win five of the seven years. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of repeats then. And I've never even heard of Richard Sherman. He's like the word, I don't know. Um, uh, is it Robert Sherman? Robert Sherman. Richard, yeah. Next week, we're going to be reading um, Elmer Rice, um, a player I really enjoy, uh, a play Street Scene, which has a crazy amount of characters, like 26. Um, and has been turned into an opera um, and it is something I'm actually really looking forward to. Um, have a good night, folks. Good night. Good night. Wait, wait. Deep on Delma, that gal that made us.